am I ready? Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. <laughs> what is that music? That is a throwback to it. That was when I first started in radio. What is that? Uh, I found the old iPod Classic over the weekend, and um, I just thought I'd give you a bit of a sample of what was on there. It's been <laughs> back in the in the back of the cupboard for a few years now since the iPhone came out. What library is that? That was my um, that was my workout playlist. Believe it or not. Nice. You're obviously not using it anymore. No. Um, <laughs> hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, the throwback, the show that takes you way back, way, way back, musically to find your mojo. We talk to the best of the best in all areas of, of your life and business to help you get your mojo working. And that's a very unique intro, but it's funny you should mention the uh, iPod Classic because I think I read in the weekend it's gone. Yeah, The Age ran a story about um, the end of the iPod Classic, isn't it? It's been um, yeah. a long time that's been around, but um, Apple have decided that uh, it's time to move on and let bygones be bygones. But you know, it's, there's, there's probably a lesson in it. Forrest Robbo, and mm. just before we start the show, that it's just, I, I, it's worth thinking about because most businesses wouldn't have the courage to go back through their repertoire mm. and look at iconic products that basically change the company mm. and put the axe through it and get rid of it. And, mm. you know, Steve Jobs' day when, when he was still with us, he was all about keeping things insanely simple. Hit it with the simple stick. Mm. And maybe Tim Cook and Johnny Ive have gone through and looked at the repertoire and gone, well, in this day and age, do we really need it? Although it's iconic, do we really need it as part of our repertoire? Because let's face it, if you were going to buy something at Christmas time, you were going to buy somebody an iPod, Mm. would you really go for a classic or wouldn't you just buy a phone? Yeah, you probably would, especially with the 6 out. You Mm. would definitely be looking at the iPhone. With all the functionality and stuff, why... In my mind, if you buy an iPod Classic, mm. it gives you exactly the same thing a phone or an iPad would do. Why would you want to carry another piece of machinery with you, another digital device? And right. I think it's quite courageous for them to do it um, because, you know, a lot of the Apple people that I spoke to on the weekend sort of went, whoa, it's, it's pretty big news, it's a big mm. call. But it's typical of what they would do to keep mm. things simple and clean. And I just think a lot of people in their own lives and particularly businesses don't have the courage to sit down, do an audit and go, do we really need this? Is it just taking up real estate? Is it just another piece of stuff to confuse our customers and clients? And has it been superseded or should we supersede it and then get rid of the old one? So it's, um, I think that, you know, as a case study, there's going to be a lot behind this rather than just getting rid of another product. Absolutely. And consider how brave it is when, um, according to the age in this article, um, the iPod, iPods alone are a billion-dollar business for Apple. So how brave are they wow. to turn around and say, oh, we're actually not going to sell those anymore? Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? The other thing that gets my mojo going about the iPod is that they mention in this story is that only six of the 111 albums that have ever sold 10 million copies have been released since the iPod's debut. So not only did they change the way we listen to music... They also changed the music industry, you know, as a whole. Six from 111. Yeah. Six from 111 wow. to sell 10 million. There's a significant learning in that, isn't it? It's awesome, isn't it? It's just unbelievable. Mm. He was a great man, the old Steve Jobs. Well, I have an old classic that still works, mm. and you've got an old classic that still mm. works, so they are going to become uh, collector's items, I reckon. So I stick them in a drawer, yep. put the charger with it, one of the 400 chargers I've got. <laughs> <laughs> we should be in a drawer somewhere too. We're archive pieces. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> this old console could do with an update just quietly. I dusted um, it over the weekend. Give me a break. I know. It's, and it looks 
almost 40 years old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, should, we, should we get into it? Let's do it. The Mojo Radio Show. So, Robbo, our guest today, I think, is our first doctor, a, a proper real professional doctor on the program. First real anybody. <laughs> And i, I got to say, I really like this guy. He, um, in fact, many people are, I'm sure would have already seen our guest, Dr. Adam Fraser, because he's a regular on uh, Channel 9 Today's show. He's been on ABC Radio, Sky Network. Um, his stories get published in like the FinRiv. I mean, he's a serious, serious researcher. And mm. he does research into human performance and he works with a number of organisations about high performance and how to thrive and get your business going in this evolving business land. In fact, we should probably get him into the show here, Robbo, because we could do with some evolving and a bit of uh, of high performance work, couldn't we? Well, I was actually thinking more about Thursday night training. Oh, now, actually, before we finish the show... Let's get Dr. Adam Fraser down to training with the under 11s. That's That's a great, that's a great thought. So, um, Adam, mate, it's just such a privilege having you here. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Very well. We are doing very well. Um, Adam, I just want to start with some stats that I found, um, I think, in one of your books, and they were, they were quite frightening. And the stats I heard were that 83% of employees are indifferent or hate their jobs. Yeah. 65% of all strategy never gets implemented and 73% of all change efforts fail. Yeah. Where are we going wrong? Oh, God. How long you got? Long you yeah, got? I mean, they're pretty <laughs> in-face stats. And, and that yeah. first piece came from Gallup. The second piece about strategy is from KPMG. And the third piece is just kind of a, an amalgamation of different studies. But that's the reality of our world. We don't execute, we don't finish stuff, or we tend to hate our jobs. So happy days. <laughs> well, so yeah. we're seeing this, and I and I think with the people that I mean, you and I have done different jobs together. We we common yeah. sense would would say that this is true. Um, where where is business going wrong? And if you were talking to business leaders today in its most simplistic form. What did they do to turn that around? Jeez, I mean, could you ask me a bigger question? It's kind of like, how do you do world peace? Um, I'm far out. There's multiple layers to this. I mean, one just jumps ahead of just the way we manage and run our organizations. It's incredibly dysfunctional. You know, I am... I'm doing this program with a big uh, utilities company, um, and, and what we're looking at is how do we get their leaders to lead better to improve the culture? And we've been nailing it. Like, engagement's really high and things are going really well. And I turned up for one of the sessions the other day and find out that they had a restructure, so a couple of people were made redundant. But this GM decided of this division, um, like, walked people out, like, out of the building, yeah, wouldn't even let them go back to their desk to say goodbye to people. People are standing outside crying, don't know what to do, they've had this thing. So all this work we just did is totally mm. destroyed by one guy's misguided actions where he doesn't treat people like humans, he treats them like cattle. And, um, yeah, this is one of the big things is that, and you, you know this better than me, Gary, the way we treat people in our organisations where... Yeah, we don't even inform them. We lie about stuff. We keep um, change from them. We're not transparent. And and the the sad thing is that these leaders of the organisations go, why aren't these people engaged? What do you reckon? (laughs) So (laughs) I, I think it's a fundamental disconnect between humanity and treating people with respect and trying to get tasks done. And, and corporations are just not doing that very well. Because, you know, I'm sorry, I'm starting to get on a rant here, but you know, leaders bitch and moan about my people aren't uh, you're committed to the organisation. But if something goes wrong, we'll like pump those people in a matter of seconds, yeah. so that my bottom line and my budget doesn't get affected. So we'll, you know, put two and two together. Anyway, it's, um, sorry, it's funny hearing you say. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's but, it's but you know what? That's what the show's about. Adam is is just giving people a chance to sit back, breathe, and think about this stuff. And 
Reminds me of a quote uh, from Mike Tyson, you know, the prophet Mike Tyson. And um, <laughs> he said, he said that's, that's about the degree of my university studies, mate, boxing yeah. and thugs. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's highbrow. Yeah, that's what the show's all about, right, Robert? You've done some in-depth research, I can tell, Gary. <laughs> uh, you, you, you wait for the quote, though, mate. And you said, everyone's got a plan until someone gets hit. And... It's like you hear all these strategies when things are going good, people are dancing around, I'm going to rope a dope, I'm going to throw this, throw that. But as soon as, to your point, something goes wrong, people forget all that and suddenly it's about survival and they forget the human instincts. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, actually, it's really... Oh, God, I can't believe we're, we're risking off Mike Dyson, but... um. <laughs> Yeah, one of the biggest things I see out there is, is people are fearful, and and you think about what we need in great organisations today is innovation, trust, push the bounds, come up with ideas because you see business models are dramatically shifting and changing like never mm. before. So we have to be more agile, more open, more. Um, take risks than ever, ever before. But what, what we're seeing is people don't feel safe to do that stuff. And I don't mean delusional, I'll have a job for 40 years safe. Like that just, that people aren't, but they just go, does my organization, does my leader have my back? You know, where they would, you know, stand up for me, look out for me, try and do the best. And, and, and that thing about, you know, you get a, the Mike Tyson quote of you get a punch in the head or you get, you know, we get blindsided by an initiative that our competitors have brought out. If if people feel safe in their environment and secure, they, they can respond to that stuff. They don't get derailed by that stuff as much. And what we're looking at in our next piece of research is what's beyond resilience. So if resilience is how do I cope and tolerate all this change that's going on, what we're looking at is, well, what, what are the characteristics of the individuals that thrive under those circumstances? And to go back to Mike, it's, well, when we do get a, a hit, um, how do we love that and persevere and try even harder rather than curl up in a ball? Yeah, that's good. That's gold. That's, um, that's great, mate. I love that, uh, that quote, does my leader... Um, have my back. That's um, that that's something for every single person who's listening to this to sit down and just think about for a second and say, you know, if something if if we did take a punch, how would we react to? It? I think that's um, that's really good, mate. Um, just on on strategy, that I've just just could you give me one one suggestion? Because I came out of a session yesterday in Sydney, and we sent we spent the day setting a strategy, and tried to do everything right. The stats said from what KPMG, 65% of all those strategies never get implemented. If there was one thing you would say to anybody who's just written a strategy like we did yesterday to ensure that we weren't in the 65% but we were in the 35%, that's mathematics, um, what would you say? Yeah, God. It's such a great question though. And... and you know, coming back to my previous point about what what what's that? What's the individual of the future look like? What's human two point look like? And what what we're calling it? And I don't even know if it's the right word. Is is gritty, which is all about tenacity. So if you look at the, our inability to implement strategy, one of it's because most of our days spent on emails and running from one meeting to another and are interrupted and rarely do we actually get time to execute. So, you know, that's clearly a problem. But one of the other things is we just don't stick it out. You know, things start to get hard mm-hmm. and we we buckle, we fold. So what we're looking at this grit concept is how do we have tenacity? Now, one of the things that comes against that, sorry, this is a big answer to your question, is if you look at the way we raise kids today, you know, they give kids a ribbon for coming tense. Why the hell does that happen? You know, (laughs) like it should be first, second, third. That's my biggest bugbear. Yeah, everyone else is a loser. Like you're a loser, you lost, you did not win. First, second, third, done. Now today, everyone has to win. And, and 
yeah, where this I look at play. My, my, I was talking to my daughter about when I was a kid and what was it like, and I said, "Oh, the worst thing was when you got splinters." And she's like, "What? What's a splinter, Daddy?" And I said, "Well, you know, where a bit of wood comes off and and goes in your skin." And we went for a walk around all the parks, and I said, "I'll show you like what a splinter." We couldn't find anywhere she could get a splinter. The grounds padded, <laughs> all the equipment has, you know, like our playgrounds weren't padded. They were made of bitumen, <laughs> you know, which rips your skin off. And so, the, the, and this is a lot of research by a woman called Carol Dweck, is that these last couple of generations, we wanted to make it easy for them. We don't want them to go through hardship. We want them to win all the time. We don't want them to experience setback. Mm. And even and when they do stuff, we tell them they're the best at it, even when they suck. Mm. And, and and what what her research has shown is it's killing their resilience. And, and the problem now is when they come up against struggle, they go, oh, that's a bad thing. Who's coming to rescue me on that? Mm-hmm. And and what they have formed is this mentality of if I'm struggling, that's bad. I should quit. Whereas, you know, the right mentality is I'm struggling, that means I'm developing. So struggle equals development. If I'm, I'm finding this really hard, clearly I'm developing some skills here. But mm. this mentality is filtered into our organizations where we come up against hard stuff and we go, ooh, change strategy, let's try something different rather than, well, let's just knuckle down and persevere through this. So what we're finding is... The one tip for strategy is to I would show I I, I would keep a, a log. Oh God, how do I phrase this? If you, if your team's trying to execute on strategy, rather than just reward them at the end if they hit it, it's showing them the tiny little steps along the way about how they're getting closer and how they're progressing and how they're they're improving. You know, some people call this mastery, whatever you want to call it. But in terms of strategy, I'd map out the plan, but don't just go, well, we'll celebrate that when we hit that end target. It's it's showing them all the steps along the way to get to that end target, but celebrating each of those milestones as you go. That's gold. That's gold. And Robbo, um, I, I think... It would be remiss of us not to invite Adam down to uh, to training, mate. Absolutely, I, I think it's imp- imperative. It's funny it, to, you, to to make it compulsory to get a splinter. <laughs> <laughs> We've got we we had a parent because there's two teams in our under eleven age group, and and what you were saying before about you know kids wanting to to win all the time and all that sort of stuff. We've got an a a Sydney A grade team and a Sydney E grade team. And this mother came to me at the beginning of the season this year and said, why do we grade our children? Why don't we take half the A grade team and put that with the E grade team and then have two teams in C grade or something rather than an A team and an E team? And I had to explain Uh. to her that firstly, if the kid is in A grade or should be in A grade and is playing in C grade, he's not being challenged. And secondly, and secondly, We've got kids who should be in E grade getting slammed by bigger, more experienced, <laughs> more better playing kids in B grade. Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah. It, it, mm. And and it, in a, in a business sense, that's sort of what we're talking about, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, you're exactly right. And back to the kid thing, the the problem is is that, and this is the self help world is to blame for this, where they go affirmation, tell them they're wonderful, that'll make them feel good, and mm. it does for a second, but. What we're falling into is outcome praise, or, or yeah, outcome praise, which is we go, oh my god, you're so talented, you're so smart, you're so pretty, you're so this, you're so that. So that's what we say to our kids: you're such a good boy, you're such a good girl. So they sit there and go, right, I'm smart. Mm-hmm. And if they're told that over and over again, that's their whole identity, mm-hmm. and they spend their whole life trying to reinforce or protect that identity. Mm-hmm. So if they do an exam where they fail. Mm-hmm. They go, oh, my God, I'm not smart anymore. Holy crap, I get love and connection when I'm smart. Okay, I've got to be smart. I've got to be smart. And what they start to do is they withdraw and pull back from challenge. Anything that could expose them and stretch them, they go, oh, I don't want that because that might tell me I'm not smart. Mm. Whereas a kid, if you process praise them of... You put so much effort into that. Oh, my gosh, yesterday you couldn't do that uh, that math 
test, and, and, but today you've done it. Have you seen that by you know, really knuckling down and putting in lots of effort, you've developed that skill. Or if a kid comes home with a painting, you don't go, oh, my God, you're so talented. God, you, you know. You say, oh, this painting's awesome. You've used heaps of red. Why did you use red? When you were painting this, how did you feel? Do you enjoy painting? It's talking about the process and the effort and the skills developed rather than you're so smart. Yeah. And, and, and that's uh, and what all this research is showing is when we process praise kids, they're much more resilient and they focus on development rather than, you know, the outcome praise. Yeah. Well, there you go. I don't need you at under 11s anymore. <laughs> That's perfect advice. I'm moving in, mate. <laughs> mate once you got the ele- once you got the under 11s to a flag, I reckon your next step was the Waratahs, buddy. You are on your way. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking this this could be it for me under the, the under 11s. Yeah. Well, you know, Michael Checker's you know moved on up, so there's a gap there as of yeah, uh, yes, the end yes, of 2015. Yes. You never know, Gaz. Where's the gap, buddy? I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just calling. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'll put in a call to the ARU and see what they have to say. <laughs> All right, I'll hear the show, mate. Don't worry about that. You'll be sending through the link, no doubt. Um, Adam, uh, Robbo and I were talking about flow, which is something you talk of, and Robbo mm. said to me that he wanted some of that. How does someone go about What is flow and how does someone go about getting some? Yeah, well, flow is the research of a guy called Mahali Cheek sent me high, and he was the first guy to sort of name that time when you feel like you're in the zone and this is where you're completely immersed in what you're doing the whole world disappears time seems to vanish and um you just you're completely lost and immersed in this moment where you're performing really high and you're reacting to the environment in the right way so it's kind of you whenever you hear someone go oh i was in the zone that's flow so flow's not necessarily something that comes from a keg? I was about to say uh, it doesn't have a bottle cap on top of it. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's one way we can get it. Is there a, a step that somebody could take immediately to give them a better chance of getting into that place? Yeah, well, the thing about flow, I mean, this is a big concept. Like, it's a, it's a not a complicated concept, but a deep one. Yeah, one of the things that gets you in the flow is, is tackling things that are just outside your capability. So going back to that mastery sort of concept of I will stretch and push myself just that little bit further, that little bit further. Um, so an, an example is, you know, with the, the, the under-11s footy team, it's getting kids to play a team that's slightly better than them is a, is a really great chance of them getting into flow because it's not, they're not so much better that they're just getting smashed, but they're slightly better so that they have to step up and really focus and really use all their skills to meet that challenge. Mm. So that's number one. And the second one is just the ability to manage attention and be incredibly focused on what you're doing. And, you know, when you're in flow, like you're not thinking about anything else. You're not multitasking. You're not doing different things. You're just in that moment in time. And what we're seeing in society is people's ability to be present and lost in something is terrible. And is that why? Is that where you? I know you've recently uh, spoken about and written about screen addiction. So, is that yeah, something yeah. you've referred to as, as being a, a flow a flow downer? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we did this for. Uh, I did this. Channel 7 TV show called uh, Live Well, and we, we looked at were people addicted to their devices, and we got families and we measured screen time, and it was astronomical, the amount of time that the kids and adults spent on devices. And what we found is in the home, most people, when the family's together, they're, they're physically together, but they're all on a device, or what we found is most people watch, a t- watch TV, but also interact with their phone or their iPad. So it's so prevalent, um, and for kids, it's a bloody disaster. All this new research coming out, the kids that spend a lot of time uh, on screens, particularly uh, before the age of three, it just messes with their attention spans really, really, really badly. Mm. In, in sort of keeping on that track of thinking, you I remember catching up with you um, only a little while ago, maybe last year or year before, and we had a coffee while you were writing a book called The Third Space, which I know yeah. uh, went on to be a yeah. bestseller. It was a cracker. And 
Can you just give us a um, – because I, 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 we're going to put a link to the book in our show notes, mate, to get people onto it because there's so much in this book. Can you just give everybody uh, up the premise behind the third space? Yeah, well, it's really a culmination of a various different things. So it wasn't – you know when you, you, you sort of see a pattern or you stumble across something, that's what we did with the third space. So where it started is I was working with a couple of soldiers who were coming home from Afghanistan – well, actually, I was working with a couple of soldiers in general, but we were having conversations and, and I was saying, what's the hardest part about being a soldier? And they said, well, coming home by far. I said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we've been away for six months, you know, in this weird environment in terms of if you compare it to society, it's weird. Um, and, and they said, we do stuff you can't even comprehend. And then they drop us home and we're supposed to sit back in and everything be fine. And what they talk about is that, I've lived a certain way. I come home, my family is completely different. You know, the dynamics have changed. And too often, you know, this is kind of a sexist view, but the, the ones I worked with were males, but they came in and went, right, dad's home, I'm running the show. And their, their partner, wife or kids are like, sorry, we've been doing fine without you. Um, you can fit into us. So what we found was a lot of, with that transition home, a lot of conflict. And what I talked to them about was using that transition home to start to change their mindset to fit into the family better. So that was one. And then, you know, some of my work with athletes, uh, what they often talked about is the most important part of uh, their sport was what happened in between the points. So whether it was volleyball players, tennis players, what they talked about is that gap between points was so critical because that's where you start to second guess, choke, worry, uh, overthink things. And they talked about managing this gap, you know, when they played tennis. And then the last one was like a very, very personal story where I was going to present at the entertainment center in Sydney. uh, It was a big group, 5,000 people and and, uh, like about 20 minutes before I went on stage, which is unusual because I normally turn my phone off. One of my mates called me and to tell me that one of my best friends had, had died unexpectedly. And I was just like, shit, you know, yeah, I kind of, you know what it's like before you go on stage. And I'm, I'm walking around the convention center in this days going, what just happened? And then the AV guy grabs me and goes, where have you been? You're like, you're going on stage. And I stood there and went, do I leave or do I stay? And, and I thought, I've got 5,000 people who have paid money to come yeah. see me present. I got this situation going on at home, but what can I do? I, I, you know, the last thing the family needs right now is for me to call them because they'll end up counselling me rather than me looking after them. And I just went, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out on stage and I'm going to present and then I'll take care of this situation. And I went out there and actually, you know, nailed the presentation. And afterwards I was a complete mess. But, you know, I just, weeks later I went, how the hell did I do that? How did I compartmentalise that and go, I'm taking care of this and then I'll deal with that. So these things started to get me thinking about, well, how do we transition from one thing to another? Like how does a soldier go from Afghanistan to home? How does a tennis player go from one point to another? And how does a speaker walk on stage when they've had something like that happen to them? So we just did all this research and we interviewed palliative care nurses and surgeons and comedians. And and what we found is there was this common theme through high performance of, their ability to manage transitions. So whether it's I'm going in to operate on someone and if I make a mistake, it's life-threatening. Um, how do I go from a bad day at work and not take that home? And we and we call this gap the third space. But what we found is that it's kind of what we do in between what we do that really matters. So that's what the book's about. So you've, we've got a listener who say, we've got a, I hope we've got more than one, but we've we got a listener who's... Um the CEO of an organisation, she is coming home to her family. You've got a school teacher who finishes teaching in the afternoon, comes home to a family. You've got a guy who's leaving one meeting, which didn't go so well, walking into another meeting with people having an expectation. Um, can you give me some tips and tools or exa- examples of, of how people use that third space in different scenarios to their advantage? Like, Creating, creating that space, where's the real gold in that to make sure that third space is utilised to the best of its advantages? 
Yeah, well, what we did with our research, and it took us four years, but we got there, was to nail all these case studies down and all the different psychological research to go, well, what has to happen in that gap? So if I've just had a meeting where I've had to performance manage someone or even move them out of the business and then I have to go to a strategy meeting, how do I do that? And what we found is there were three key things. The first phase was called reflect, and this is where we reflect on what's just happened. So how do we make sense of what's gone on? How do we shut that down so it doesn't bleed into the next thing? Because what we found is most people carry the mood and emotion of that first space into the second thing they're about to go into. So that ability to reflect on what's just happened and move on from it. Then the next phase was called rest. And this was the ability to just be present and, and relaxed. And this might be two seconds. This might be, you know, a minute. And it's just where you come back to the present moment, calm your mind and focus on where you are currently. Because too often we, we go into the next thing with this scattered mind that's bouncing all over the place. And what we found is that just enabled people to think clearer, make better decisions, be more considered. And then the third phase was called reflect. Uh, sorry, it's called reset. So reset, it's reflect, right. rest, reset. And reset rest, is yeah. where you start to think about what you're about to go into. Okay, I'm going into this meeting. This meeting's about strategy. We've got this political thing going on in this team right now. How could I navigate that? I'm about to go home. Well, I've had a crap day, but also my partner might have had a really hard day. You know, if I look at my situation, as I transition home, I think my wife's been looking after two kids all day. She's exhausted. Yeah, and it's thinking about what's about to greet me and what mindset and behavior is going to get the most out of that. So if I'm going in to meet with a team, with my team and we're reviewing a project that hasn't gone very well, right, okay, how should I show up for that? Well, I should be empathetic, I should listen rather than being command and control, get their insight. So just using that gap to visualize and prepare yourself for what's coming next. Now, we, we researched this in various areas and we've got a group of small business owners to practice these three steps between work and home. And we measured their mood in home at the start and at the end of the study. And and after practicing these three steps on the way home, we saw a 41% improvement in behavior in the home. You know, dramatically changed the, yeah, it was huge. We were stunned at what an impact it had. And then our latest research shows that it changes the family dynamic too. The family's looking forward to them coming home. They greet them better. They, the, the dynamic of the family behaves better as well. So, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Mate, that's, um, there's a lot of gold in Bendy Hills. That's gold. Um, what we're going to do, we are talking with Dr. Adam Fraser uh, on the Mojo Radio Show. I know there are people who are going to write down those three key bits about the third space, reflect, re- uh, rest, and reset. So we'll take a quick break. Let people take those notes down and we'll be back with more from Dr. Adam Fraser. Mojo Radio Show. Okay, we, uh, we're sitting here talking with Dr. Adam Fraser. We've spoken about The Third Space, um, and it is, it is a great book. It's a bestseller and highly recommended for anybody listening who wants to get more on the stuff we're talking about because, you know, 41% difference, it's, it's powerful stuff. But the other book you wrote um, was called Sugar Daddy, and Robbo, um, I think, had the wrong interpretation of what sugar daddy uh, was I thought all you were going to say Robbo is a sugar daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you were thinking. Um, can you give us, uh, we don't want to delve sort of too deeply, but I think this is such a critical issue um, that you address in this book. And, and I, as I said, I, I read it this week and I really enjoyed it. I found it sort of very informative and very thought-provoking um, and in some cases with the stats you put forward, a little bit disturbing. Can you give us the premise behind Sugar Daddy? Yeah, well, part of my PhD looked at, we, we took a bunch of sort of um, 
very unhappy, metabolically not very healthy group of males and put them through a lifestyle program to see what changed. So we did all sorts of things with them from exercise to psychological <laughs> interventions and we just looked at how can we make them healthier and happier? How can we improve their quality of life, improve their energy levels? And one of the things we looked at, just because it impacts the body so much, is how their bodies process glucose and insulin, so how those two things interacted, which is obviously related to diabetes. So that's where Sugar Daddy comes from, is the, the, the research I did in my PhD and the subsequent research we did in the Glucose Club about how do we manage diabetes, which, you know, you look at diabetes and mental health, they're the two big tsunamis that are really having an impact on us from a health perspective. It's metabolic health and it's mental health, which the two are related, by the way, too. Um, so, yeah, Sugar Daddy was just kind of uh, a scientific but very fun view. And the title, you know, obviously gives you an indication of the style of the book. Of, of, okay, if, if we've got diabetes or if we're at risk of it, what can we do to stop it? But it's not, you know, sort of yell at you and get out there and do it and get over yourself. It's just, you know, what does the science say? But also, how do we do this stuff? Because that's the hardest part. You know, a lot of Sugar Daddy talks about the behavior change behind how do I have a healthy lifestyle rather than just, you know, guilt and you should yeah. do it. I found it, I did find it scientific. I did find it a lot of fun. I found it very conversational. So I think I would, I would reinforce everything you've said. Could... Could somebody listening to this show have diabetes and not know it? Oh, gosh, yes. That's one of our biggest problems is that the vast majority of people with type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance, which, is, you know, it's, it's a progressive disease. It starts out and then it um, tends to get worse and worse if we don't do something about it. But that's the challenge is it's a very silent disease too that, um, you know, creeps up. Obviously, type 1, you'll know that you've got that because you're no longer producing insulin, but type 2 is where your body's not really using insulin very, very well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that um, can have a huge impact on your lifestyle. So just two, two parts with that. Um, are there any warning signs that would give people a thought that maybe they are dealing with or facing um, type 2. And in keeping with that, how would it affect someone's life to give them a clue they should go and get this checked? Yeah, God, I want to answer that two ways. Like one is to answer your question and, and talk about like the risk factors are, actually it's really hard because the risk factors used to be you're over 40, you're a male overweight, um, you know, males are, are much more prone to it than, than females are, um, family history, all these sorts of things. But what we're starting to see is teenagers are developing this condition, which is just mind-blowing. But, I mean, uh, so to answer it that one way, you've got those obvious things, the risk factors. The big thing is just to get regularly checked for it, particularly yeah, if you've yeah. got a family history of it. Particularly if you are in those, um, you know, you're overweight, you're inactive, those sorts of um, risk factors. But, but the real key is that to regularly, you know, talk to your GP or get tested once a year to see how your glucose levels are going. That would be the better piece of advice is that you know, clearly if you're a 30-year-old uh, woman who's seriously fit and has no family history, I wouldn't worry about it. But if, if you're in some of those more risky areas, I'd be going and getting checked on a regular basis. In the research you do, because I know you work with a lot of universities in the Asia-Pacific mm. and mm. it's the base of what you do, which is why I like your stuff so much because it's founded in research rather than just a gut feeling. Um, yeah. In doing these books, Adam, e either one of the books and doing the research, what are there any personal lessons you've, you've taken out and you've in, put into your own life like you've researched that seen these things and gone wow you know what i'm going to make a difference to my own life and things you've actually done <laughs> actually gary it tends to work the other way around like it's then it, my research is very self-serving <laughs> <laughs> you know like uh the third space was all about holy crap i'm drowning here i'm not getting balanced right i'm 
I'm not reacting to things so as much more. And now our new research around grit and tenacity and human 2.0 is, oh my God, the whole world's changing. How do I keep up with it? So, yeah, it, it, it's kind of been driven. But I, I find the third space really changed my life. Like it, far out, it changed my life. And, and particularly because we looked at the application of it to work-life balance. And God, you and I have had many coffee slash beer about this challenge that we have of, you know, being a, a keynote speaker traveling all over the world, yet we're very dedicated to our families. How do you how do you mm. do that? And so when we looked at work life balance, uh one of the, the things I had to do, as you said, like all my stuff's research based. So I had to read when we wanted to apply it to um to work-life balance, I had to read the research on work-life balance and I found two big holes. Number one, most of the strategies revolved around time. So it was all about if you're organized and structure your day, then you'll have balance. And I thought, well, we, we work all the time. Like there's no boundary between work and home. So that's 90 style work-life balance. And the second thing was yep. most of the subjects in the studies were full-time university students. <laughs> what do they need to know about balance? <laughs> do I go to the pub now or, or do I go to the pub later? <laughs> so, um, How many pubs do we they go use to? Them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They used them because they were free and they're on campus. So when we did our research, I said to my research partner from Deakin University, we're doing three different things. Number one, we're only using senior business people or small business owners, like people that are busy and stretched. Number mm. two is we ask people, why do you want balance? Because most people hate that word. And they said, oh, I want balance to be happy and to have better relationships. So I thought that's more about how you behave rather than time. And then the third thing is we interviewed families and said, if your mum, dad, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, had partner, had balance, what does that look like? And they didn't talk about time. Like none of them went, oh, well, you should be home more. They went, you know, we, actually, they said we get the phone calls, we get the emails. What we don't get is you come through that door and you're a jerk. That's what we don't mm. get. You come through that door and you take your day out on us. You come through mm. that door and treat us like we're an inconvenience that gets in the way of your work. So families went balance is come home in a good mood and engage with us. And, you know, like one, it informed our research. Two, I just went, my God, that's. I've been a jerk for you know, five years and I've got to start showing up better. So it wasn't that I was necessarily home all, but when I was home, I was a rock star, mm. compassionate, engaged, empathetic, focusing on them, not me. So that one thing just completely changed my marriage, changed the way I parented, huge impact. Yeah. yeah. That is yeah. very, very powerful, mate. Good on you. Um, we're going to uh, – I know you have always got lots going on and we're going to give you a chance to go to your third space. Um, yeah. We're just going to do a quick uh, a quick rapid fire, some quick questions, quick answers from you, um, Adam. Oh, God. No, no, they're easy ones, I promise you. Rapid fire mojo. Um, do you have a morning ritual? Um, I wouldn't say a morning ritual. I have a daily ritual of things that are non-negotiables that I have to do. Yep. And which would be one is meditation, 15 minutes. Uh, two is exercise. So they're the two things that happen each day regardless of whatever's going on. How do you meditate in and 15 you- minutes? Sorry, guys. No, you're right. Uh, I, I've just got this, I got this thing on my phone that just walks me through it. It's beautiful. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it just, um, it's a 15-minute meditation that, uh, that I do each day and oh God, it's, it's the most important thing I do by far. It's something I've thought about, I'll be honest, because I sort of live the hectic work style lifestyle that you were just talking mm. about. I'd actually be interested yeah. in having a go at that. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. So what I would get you to do is there's an app. The one I use is uh, called take a break. When I'll just open my phone right now. Here's um, one we earlier. And it has, yeah, it has a seven-minute or a fifteen-minute meditation on there. Yeah, okay. take a break. Just take go to the break. iTunes Store, download it, and this is the other thing we learned from Sugar Daddy is that behavior change was all about how do you just make it really, really easy. So mm. for two years, I went, yeah, I should do that meditation stuff, mm. and I never did it. Mm. And then I just I got an app and I just press a button on my phone. So. Uh, 
I, I do a lot of things called when then. So mm. if I want to install a habit, I put it into a process of when then. So when this happens, then I do that. So yeah. with meditation, if my wife exercises in the morning, I when she gets up, I get up and I do my meditation then. Right. If it's my turn to exercise in the morning, uh, when I put my kids to bed, so the moment they go into bed, I go upstairs, do my meditation. Uh, same thing when the, the um, when I get in a taxi or, uh, you know, to go to the airport, I do it then. Right. It's just, so, you know, I have all these areas that um, I, I, you know, chances to insert this. Mm. But they're my two, exercise and meditation. There's a, there's a takeaway in itself, Gary. Yeah. Oh, when then man, this show just just paid for itself. Two words. <laughs> Make it, honestly, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll put the app um, in the show notes mm. so people just go to the mojoradioshow.com, look under um, Adam's uh, show notes, and we'll put a, a link through there for people. And um, but also that you know, make it easy goes right back to we started the show with mm. strategy mm. is breaking mm-hmm. it down. And I heard someone recently, I think it was Ty Lopez, talked about. Um, breaking things down into smaller pieces. He said, if the next step is too big, then break it down again. Mm. If the next step is yeah. too big, break it down again. The smallest mm. possible step. Uh, so that reinforces exactly what you're saying. And I love that. Isn't that good, Robbo? When then? Oh, I love that. I've just written it down. Mm, that is uh, yeah, that's really you can, good. When then you can apply it to anything. So what, another challenge I had is I wasn't doing research, like, you know, new trends research. Mm. And uh, so when I turn on my computer, I spend the first 10 minutes looking at Fast Company and just read a couple of things and then I put it in Evernote. So it's a, when I turn my computer on, then I do my 10 minutes of reading trends. Mm. Yeah, so you can just use it in anything. Yeah. That is fantastic, man. That's a great takeaway. Um, so I should be teaching the kids in the rugby team, when I get to the breakdown, I get low and I drive <laughs> over the ball. Then we win the ball. Is that right? Yeah. That's exactly it. <laughs> when I'm losing, I will cheat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Adam, what book would you recommend to people? What's what's the book you recommend the most to people to read apart from your own uh, or mine? Um, what book would you recommend the most? Oh, God. Asking that question to a, a book tart like me. That's hard. Um <laughs> I, I, you know, one of the ones I love the most was Good Business by Cheek Sent Me High, that guy who uh, developed Flow. Every time I read that book, I'm like, how did I miss that? You know, I get something new out of it every time. Uh, Switch by Dan and Chip Heath is really, really good. Um, but there's a guy I'm doing, I'm doing some work in Kuwait at the moment where we're looking at how do we make the country happier, like, this is no joke. That's the project is, wow. is how do we make the country yeah. happier? Um, and there's a guy called Todd Cashdan is working uh, on this project with me, and he's from George Mason University in New York. I reckon this guy's going to be the next big thing, or well, actually, he probably already is the next big thing. He wrote a book called Curious, um, but he's just written a book called The Upside of Your Dark Side. And what it talks about is this happiness movement is actually starting to become quite dysfunctional and and detrimental because it's all about obsessing around, am I happy? How can I be happier? You know, and what he talks about is what we're missing out. What, what we're doing is starting to discard negative emotion and starting to see it as dysfunctional. And what his book's about is, is how negative emotion um, is incredibly valuable and, and how we can use it to uh, improve our life. So probably that one I'd recommend for people. I think that's really, you know, cutting edge, on trend, really, really important right now. We will put all those books in the show notes to make it easy for the people listening. Um, what's your favourite app right now? Apart from Take a Break, do you have another favourite app or is that your favourite app? Oh, my favourite app is probably Things which is just a to-do list on my phone. Um, I'm not a huge app person. Oh, no, my God. How could I miss this one? Evernote. That's the greatest (laughs) freaking tool that's ever been um, made. And Evernote is just the ability to capture 
uh, information, but also to tag it and search it. And you can take a photo of a, um, like if you're in an airport somewhere, you take a photo of a magazine, load it, it'll search the words in the photo. It's just genius. So, yeah, Yeah, it's a beauty. my wife uh, takes all our receipts for everything and she mails them off and Evernote enters them into her Evernote in a digital form. So when we need to get a warranty or something, yeah, it's fantastic. The, the, the depth of what this thing can do for tagging and finding. So if I go, where's the receipt for something we bought nine months ago? She just goes to Evernote. So, uh, and we also both use things, which I, I use every single day. So we will put both of those as click-throughs in the show notes. Um, Mate, God, uh, no wonder accountants are nervous. <laughs> 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 but it does work. It does save us a lot of time. Do you have a personal mantra or saying that Adam, Dr. Adam Fraser lives by? Jeez. <laughs> um, not really. I, I think probably it's a bit Tony Robbins for me, or maybe. Um, I think that out of the third space, the biggest question. Every time I go into something, I just ask myself, how am I showing up? You know, when I go pick my kids up from school, when I walk into the house, when I go into a meeting, when I stand up on stage, I just always ask myself that question, how are you showing up? So that would be it probably. And uh, last question, do you have a song that I would play for you when you're about to walk on stage in front of 5,000 people to get your mojo working? Oh, Killing in the Name of by um, uh, Rage Against the Machine. Man after my own heart. I was presenting at the Melbourne Convention Centre in the big room and uh, we did the AV check and I was checking the volume of my uh, computer and me and the AV guys were playing that song like, to full volume in the convention centre in Melbourne. It was epic. Yeah, yeah, so it was cool. <laughs> that is a great way to uh, to round out the show. Um, Adam, it has been such such a treat, mate, having you on the show. You, I know we could, we could talk pleasure. for hours. You've been, um, you have given us wisdom, you've given us gold, you've given us things to make us better, things for the family, things for the kids. I, honestly, I can't thank you enough, mate. That was just a cracking show. Awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think I got a bit of flow. Time disappeared. <laughs> Where can um, – we, we, I know without doubt there's going to be people who want to look you up um, to look at your materials, um, the Glucose Club, Adam Fraser, the books. We'll put all the links into the show notes. But where, just so people know who are listening to you right now can write this down, where can we find you? Just at uh, dradamfraser.com, and that's D-R-A-D-A-M-F-R-A-S-E-R.com. So, yeah, or just Google me. That site will come up. And, uh, they, and people can just shoot me an email. Mate, uh, let's get on with your day. So on behalf of uh, me and the guy in the studio next to me, Robbo. Good, Thank you good, very much. Wasn't a good show, Robbo? Another one. Robbo and I catching up for training. That's it. We're going to give you a call. I've got your number now. <laughs> Does he know where to go to, Robbo? Mate, just just d- drop, drop the, uh, the Pennant Hills Pen- there, mate. Pennant Hills Oval. Pennant Hills Oval, Pennant Hills. Uh, Thursday night, 6 o'clock, it's during the off-season training, bit of pre-season training. Awesome. It's in the diary. Beauty. We'll you know the you good there. thing, though, that um, you when you get down there, you're also going to meet, you're going to see your old mates, uh, Dan Gregory, Matt Church. They're all yeah, coming they're down. They're all there. Mate. Everyone's hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, Gary, I haven't awesome. seen you there yet. Yeah, well, that should be the end of the program. We should. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you and good night. Thanks, Adam. See, see you soon for a break, Awesome, mate. guys. Thank you so much, mate. That was brilliant. All right, take it easy, fellas. Cheers. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Wow, how good was that? He's awesome. Absolutely awesome. And I was serious about that meditation thing. That's something that I have been thinking about, like he said, for years, and I've actually never done anything about. It's such an important point. I heard a, a report recently. In fact, I've heard a number of reports that when they talk to the highest performing CEOs running mm. today's hottest companies, mm. the one thing they all have in common is meditation. Wow. Yeah. And I would say to anybody interested in this topic is to work out your own 
way of doing it. Adam mm. has his style. Tim Ferriss, who wrote the Four Hour Work Week, he has done a lot of work on sort of biohacking mm. meditation, and he has one song he plays. So he gets up, puts on the one go-to song. Mm. which may only be three or four minutes, and he meditates to that, but that's his style that he finds that puts him into flow. So is that the same so, song every day or does that change? Yeah, 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 it's the same song. There you go. And I must say um, one of the shows we did with Anna Devane, remember the Sleep yep. Muse, Anna, yep. beautiful Anna? Mm-hmm. There was a piece of music that she, uh, she quoted, which was, um, I'll put it in the show notes, um, Beautiful piece of music. And I mm. must say that when I'm sitting on a train, I quite often put that on and just stare out the window. And I find that a really nice way of creating a third space and meditating and sort of getting more into a flow and just chilling and reflecting. And mm. so um, there's lots of different ways people can do it. I think the important thing is don't get hung up on you have to do it for 20 minutes the same way the yogis do it. I think your first step is to get take a break. Um, mm. or just get a nice piece of music. I probably wouldn't do your normal catalogue on your phone, which mm. is normally Fooey's <laughs> U2 Pride in the name of love, ACDC's Thunderstruck. I probably wouldn't use that as the music flow piece, mate. A bit of Metallica, though. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? And a Sandman would, would probably work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as Adam said, 15 minutes. I mean, that's brilliant because you think about meditation and you think, oh, it's, it's an hour or it's an hour and a half. But as you just said, it doesn't have to be. 15 minutes is so doable for anybody, surely. I think the other piece that, added, that I wrote down with that is when then. And yeah. I think with your lifestyle here in the studio, yes. I think when then works really well that when the kids go down mm. or when the wife is doing this or when I'm having a coffee then. I think mm. what do you find those things that fits in with, mm. with the voodoo timetable as opposed yeah. to the same way everybody does it? In fact... I really liked, there's a couple of answers I loved when I said, what's your mantra or saying? It was a question, which I thought was really powerful. How am I showing up? Yeah. Um, and importantly, with all things we talked about is making it easy. So I thought, mm. um, gee, I thought that was a great, great show. Questions are so powerful, aren't they? When, like when you put them in that sort of perspective. I mean, I, I don't want to go back to the kids again and the under 11s, but I will just once because one thing we talk about at training all the time is when you're on the pitch and, and something happens, you know, I'm trying, we, we talk about saying to ourselves, what do I have to do now? Rather than saying, this is what you do, give them the power to make the choice, but ask themselves the question, okay, what do I have to do? And, and even they get it. It's interesting. Adam mentioned Tony Robbins. I heard an interview with him last week uh, and the first thing he opened with was the quality of your questions determines the quality of your life. Yeah, wow. And That's good. I think to your point with the kids, it's the questions to kids. It determines what's next, the smaller piece that you break down, it determines what you want, it determines what the dreams are, how you're going to... I mean, all those things come from curiosity and curiosity, I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes said, curiosity is the wick in the candle of learning. And it's one of the issues today we have with business is that we're not curious. We're too busy doing stuff. We Mm. confuse activity with accomplishment. If I'm not busy, I'm not getting stuff done. Mm. But to Adam's point, I love the fact that he didn't answer with a mantra or a saying. He answered with a question. question. And it's that question that stops him yeah. from what he's doing. And you pause for that moment to ask a question that opens up all the possibilities. Yeah. Children, princes and princesses of possibility. Mm. So I think, um, I think your point is spot on. I think it's gold. Mm. Um, I have got a book for you today to close the show. All right, hang on. Let me play this. Got to keep it formal. The Mojo Pages. Okay, you can go now. Now, I had a lot of mail over the weekend um, from listeners who had watched Catalyst on the ABC. And there was a show on Catalyst, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, about, and it follows on from what Michael Smith talked about in the last show. So if you haven't actually caught Michael's show yet about what to eat to get your mojo working, it's definitely worth going back and having a listen because he was bang on with his 
usable, practical stuff about food to get your mojo working from the bedroom right through to the boardroom. And I can tell you now, a week into my diet, I'm feeling a changed man already. Sweet. Mm. That's good, isn't it? It's working. That and the um, sour cherries. Yeah, man, that, that, the cherry thing I'm loving. In fact, I've just set my wife out for more cherries. Um, the frozen ones I'm loving just quietly. They're um, the uh, most cost-effective and the best way to store them because you can just put them in the freezer and uh, help yourself to them. They taste good anyway and good in smoothies. Uh, so Catalyst was on the weekend on the ABC. We'll put a link to it. The show was about fat, healthy fats and carbohydrates by reducing your carbohydrate intake and the processed crap you're eating and increasing your healthy fat, how uh, elite sportsmen like LeBron James and these sorts of guys are getting into it and the results they're having. Uh, Shane Watson was, just, was one of the guys on the show. They talked about how it's changed his life um, in terms of his health and his performance and everything else. So that show featured a guy called Professor Tim Noakes. Now, anybody who's listening who is an athlete may know Tim Noakes because he wrote The Law of Running, which I'll put a link to in the show notes as well. And that was the runner's Bible back in the day when I was running Marathon. A big book, but it was kind of the, 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 the absolute law, L-A-W. Um, uh, but the book is called L-O-R-E of Running. So Tim Noakes also has written a new book, which has only recently come out, called The Real Meal Revolution, which I'll put in the show notes. So anybody who wants to buy these books, go through the show notes, click on it, because if you do buy it through our website, Amazon, iTunes, give us a kickback. It costs you no more, but we actually click the ticket because we do this show completely for free. Um, and it's just an easy way for us to get some little um, cash back. It's not a lot, but it's pay for your coffee habit. So, <laughs> and the team teams. <laughs> the team teams. <laughs> Here's what the book's all about. Um, it essentially takes what was on Catalyst and it breaks it down into all the myths that we have about food that's t- stealing our mojo and what we can do about it. It's a really good book. It's beautifully illustrated. It's really easy to read. It's done in three different sections. It's, it's a book that you can get in and out of really quickly. Um, And I'll read from the front. I said, what's it all about? Part myth-busting scientific thriller, part mouth-watering cookbook, the goal of the real meal revolution is to change your life by teaching you how to take charge of your weight and your health through the way you eat, dot, 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 therefore helping you get your mojo working. I I added that bit in. Um, And what it is is a beautiful book and it takes you through all the philosophies, all the theories behind it, all the science behind it. The good thing about Tim Noakes, Professor Tim Noakes, is it's all backed by data. And a lot of the myths that we have in society today are not backed by data. They're done as marketing ploys by the people who sell the crap. This is a good book. The other thing is there are some beautiful recipes in the back of this book and the photography is spectacular. I loved it from smoothies to main meals to breakfast to snacks. It really is a good book. Um, it's a, a good value book. This will be an excellent Christmas present. So it's called The Real Meal Revolution by Professor Tim Noakes. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The preface is changing the world one meal at a time. Uh, uh, sub, subheading, uh, get your mojo working one meal at a time. Really good book. I loved it. Great present for Christmas. Um, in fact, that might be what you're getting for Christmas, buddy. That sounds good. I'll read that. On the, um, on the subject of food um, and feeding the world, just a gentle reminder that if anyone um, is interested in helping um, Adam uh, feed the world over there in, in England, they need to the raise real, The Real Junk, junk Food, food Project. Project.co.uk. And if you haven't listened to our midweek special from last week, please go back and do so because if you want some inspiration about how someone had a dream to do something and actually got in and did it, uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised with that interview. But yeah, um, check out the real junk food project.co.uk. They need to raise 130,000 pounds before the 1st of January, 2015. And it's a great cause. So, um, so please do that. Do it. So I reckon that's, uh, Got our mojo pumping for another week, but Whistle, what do you reckon? Big week. Huge week. Huge mm, week. So um, there's been some really good shows. So anybody who 
has missed a few shows, go back because right from the start, we've had some cracking shows. We had some wonderful feedback on Anna Devaner. If you're mm-hmm. not getting eight hours sleep, find out what you can do about it and how that is affecting your mojo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Smith last week on food was an absolute cracker. And um, yeah, it's good. We, we, we've, got, we've got some fantastic guests that we've done and we've got some brilliant, brilliant guests coming up. It's funny um, how people don't think that the way we eat can affect our mind and our mm. thinking but it's absolutely mm. true isn't it it's absolutely mm. true absolutely yeah and the brain the brain feeds off food which we don't think about and mm. the brain controls every single thing we do mm. um and we talk about brain food being reading and podcasts and everything else but it's also mm. what you put into your mouth so um nutrition is i think we're going to keep exploring this area for performance and as we said to um to one of our guests during the week, it, it is it affects you from the bedroom right through to the boardroom, and that's where it uh, yes, that's where the rubber hits the road. My oh, there's a show to look forward to. We <laughs> <laughs> should get someone. We will actually. We will get somebody on about that. Yeah, we should. All right. In the we'll meantime, see. it's time. That'll be the Marvin Gaye show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm out. See ya. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.